Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. This show is brought to you by Pariah Pickups. What you want, what you need, what you love. Check them out at pariahpickups.com. And to support the No Sleep Till Sudbury show on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash Music. This week, I welcome to the show Martha Johnson and Mark Gain, founding members of the legendary Martha and the Muffins. They're here to talk about their new album, Marthology, In and Outtakes. Check it out. Martha and Mark, it's a true pleasure to have you on the show. How are you guys doing? We're fine, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. The weather's not the best right now, but uh, summer's over. I'm never happy about that, but Christmas is coming. No, it's uh, definitely over as I look out the window here. I know. Yeah, pretty blustery. I'm happy to be talking to you guys today. I've been a fan since my youth, Echo Beach. It's still a favorite of mine. I love the fact that you guys named yourselves Martha and the Muffins to distance yourself from the more aggressively named art punk and punk bands in the landscape around that time. We might have gone a little too far, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it was supposed to only be a temporary name, though, right? Yes. I wish it had been, but, you know, people say that if they, we hadn't had that name, everything would be different, you know, and uh, maybe we would have been, never done a record because the, uh, you know, the person who signed this may probably caught the name right away. Oh. Was intrigued. Or, you know, so you never know, you know, what, what the situation would be if you change one element. Yeah. Ironically, like when we first started going over to England, they, at that time, they didn't have anything called muffins. They had tea cakes. Oh. But they had some kid show called Muffin the Mule, which we, of course, never got over here. But when we went in to do an interview, they go, oh, Muffin the Muffins, oh, Muffin the Mule, and they get all teary-eyed. You know, yeah. <laughs> they <get> that old. <laughs> and they all, the other thing they did was when we first came over to play, the first time we played at, I think we said uh, London University, mm-hmm. they billed us as Tilly and the Tea Cakes. <laughs> They didn't want to let the muffins out of the bag. Yeah, it was supposed to be a secret gig or something. Oh, I didn't know any of this stuff. Wow. That's cool. History. <laughs> yeah, it was all a long time ago, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, that, that would have been seventy nine eighty, right? Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. It, was, was, it was late 1980. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, regardless of that, though, Echo Beach stood strong. It was, a, it was an international hit. It was huge. Yeah, it was big everywhere except the United States where they messed it up. The record company was just starting up in um, the U.S., Virgin, and they didn't have it together yet. They gave it to Atlantic, and they didn't know who the hell we were, so they just got lost in the shuffle. And I think things would have been quite different if we if it had been released, because it, it went top ten everywhere it was released, pretty much. Yeah. Well, you had a few other songs from Metro Music, I believe, that played on American radio. Yeah, we were we were sort of culty down there, you know, and um, it wasn't like we were ignored. I mean, we did get lots of press, and when we played down there, it was always interesting because you could tell what cities were behind you radio-wise. And mm-hmm. I, I know, like, both coasts were really good, and we played Washington a number of times, and, you know, I, there were literally, like, lineups around the record store where we were doing signing, and we were totally shocked. Like, we didn't expect that at all, and it was all about the radio. Mm-hmm. We, played, we played with Simple Minds. So after we did our set, half the audience left. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, we had a big audience in Washington. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know We the uh, Simple Minds, who weren't very nice on stage. <laughs> he gave us about two feet. 
And and this was st- this is around the same time period, obviously, right? Nineteen eighty one. Yeah, this was the Dance Park era oh, band. Yeah. Oh, that was that would be eighty three. That particular gig, anyway. I know we played there earlier. That was your fourth record. Yes. Yeah. And that's kind of a funny thing that a lot of people don't know either, is that Daniel Lanois' sister was actually in the band for a little while. That's right. Yeah, when um, Carl Finkel, our original bass player, left, I had a friend from the Ontario College of Art who was waitressing at the time, and, and I was talking to her, and she said, or I said, you know, we, we need a new bass player. And she said, oh, well, I know this woman who's waitressing with me. That's a bass player. And we, and we went, oh, okay, so... We met her and we liked her and she seemed to be pretty good on bass. And through that, she said, I've got two brothers in Hamilton that have a studio. Mm. And this was just as we were writing This Is The Ice Age, because that's when she joined. She joined on the third album. Mm-hmm. We went, oh, yeah, OK. So, you know, we went and, and demoed those songs at Grant Avenue. And of course, Dan was there and his brother, Bob, was uh, running the studio as well. And we got on so well that we decided to do that album with him, and we did the, the next two with him as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he went on to work with you too, and and Peter Gabriel and everybody else. Yeah, wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. huge. So you now are here today, all these years later, to talk about your brand new record. It's called Marthology In and Outtakes. And uh, it dropped on November 5th. The album spans 35 years of recordings, including the 30th anniversary version of your Juno award-winning single, which is Echo Beach. And uh, it's also got some alternate versions of album tracks. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, it, uh, it was our manager, Graham Stair's idea, actually. And he's, he's been bugging us for years. Well, I shouldn't say bugging, but he was suggesting that we do what he called an odds and sods album mm-hmm. of all the stuff. You know, we'd listen to these things on and off over the decades and go, yeah, that's pretty good. Why didn't we ever put that out? Or why didn't that go on that you know, particular album? And uh, the timing is such that we kind of put this out now because we will be releasing a new Martin and the Muffins album oh. in 2022, an entirely new album. And yes, new songs. Yeah, oh. new songs. Cool. It was Graham's idea to put Marthology out as sort of a way to reintroduce people to the band or maybe people hadn't heard us before or thought we were long gone or whatever. And mm. so this is sort of a, a way of saying, hey, we're still alive and next <laughs> year we're putting out a real album. <laughs> well, that's great. I think a lot of people are really going to be very interested in this. Echo Beach, as I said, is a staple the other day, I heard it on the radio, and I actually stayed in the car after I, I got home just to listen to the end of it. So yeah, that's I, great. I've always loved the song. I mean, there's, there's obviously a nostalgic aspect to it because it came out when I was a, a really young kid. But like, it's just mm-hmm. I, I, I still love it. I still love Black Stations, White Stations. You know, this is good music. It's classic stuff. Well, thanks for that. And uh, you know, it, it, as songwriters, uh, we are still after 40 years constantly amazed at how these you do these things and you know of course in the early days we didn't really know what we were doing at all and mm. to have song well particularly echo beach but you know black stations and some other ones go out into the world hit listeners in in ways that you could have never predicted and then you know here we are talking with you and you're saying you were uh, you know very young and when you first heard it and you're still here, I mean, that, that really, honestly, blows our minds. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> we're, we're not jaded that way at all. 
I'm glad. That's good. That's a good thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's always disappointing to meet somebody that you admire and have them turn out to be jaded or cynical or, you know. Yeah, it's very disappointing, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely is. What was it like for you guys to go through the old material and, and decide what should appear on this record? How did you, what kind of thinking went into that? Well, we went went to our trusty computer and just found things that we we had forgotten about a lot in many cases. And some things were obvious, you know, the, the 30th anniversary of Echo Beach. You know, we wanted to have that song represented, but in a different way. So the, we chose to put that on. And it's quite a nice version of the song, I think, because it's got a much, uh, it's kind of sad sounding and a little bit and, and nostalgic still, mm-hmm. but in a different way because people are older, people who were young when the song first came out. So it's got a bit of a melancholy feel to it. Mm. And then, you know, there were other things like, um, there's a song called um, Talking Through My Hat. Mm-hmm. And um, that was uh, that was particularly adventurous vocally. And I, I was quite interested in having people hear that because it showed a side of my, my singing that was that never really represented it, I, I don't think, on any of the Martha and the Muffins albums. So. What, you imitating a trumpet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one of your best vocals. And, you know, that would have been, I mean, that was definitely from the get-go, a song that I thought had to go on there, even though it's, you know, basically an uncompleted demo. Mm. And there's a lot of references to Echo Beach, actually, like um, Summer of Song, that was sort of reflecting on what, that summer of 1980 was like for us because it was a high point of the, the success of Echo Beach. And yeah. The, the touring and the, the, the press and all the attention and the band having all, all the, the strife as well. Ah, yeah. <laughs> all represented in, in that song. And, and then um, the other one I wrote for like, oh, on a silent summer evening. That also is a reference to, to Echo Beach. Mm. We should have been the Beach Boys. <laughs> Why? I don't get it. I mean, there's a lot of beach references. Oh, beach. We have to wear those striped shirts. So. That's right. Well, I could, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good segue into your songs, actually, because one of you do have a Beach Boys song on your list. Are you guys ready That's to right. talk about the songs that make your skin vibrate? Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we'll start that with that one. <laughs> well, that's one of them. So, so we'll start with Martha. Your first one is Laura Mvula and Green Garden. Yeah, I just I discovered that song just just by accident. I, I actually can't remember how I found it. I was you know, looking for something to play, and I don't know why it, why it came up, but it's, it's a fabulous song rhythmically, and um, the, the phrasing of the vocal is amazing. She, mm-hmm. She's got a great voice. And then all the chorus vocals, it's so unpredictable where they're going to go to next. And it just makes my spine tingle. Yeah, no, Doesn't me make too. make your skin vibrate. <laughs> my spine tingle, sorry. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But even thinking, talking about it and thinking about it, you know, it makes me sort of shiver a bit. Yeah, no, it, she's... I, I hope think, other people like enjoy it. It's a really good song. It is. She's, I had heard of her before. She's English, I think, and her dad is Jamaican, I believe. Great percussion in the song, great harmonies. You're right. It's good soul performance. Yeah, it's funny because I, I listened to some of her other songs, and they're nothing like this, this Green Garden. Mm. It, it seems to be an anomaly, and I, I'm glad she did it. Yeah, yeah. She's got, she's got a very interesting voice. Oh, she certainly does, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Bob Marley is next, Martha, and Waiting in mm-hmm. Vain. Yeah, Waiting in Vain. I love that song. I've loved that song ever since it first came out. I saw Bob, Bob Marley at, in Toronto at Convocation oh, Hall. Wow. That was many, many years ago. And it was the 70s. 
there were two two concerts like they she was doing two sh- two shows back to back. The audience who we were in the first show wouldn't wouldn't leave for a lot of them. There was a bit of a row about that. I remember that. Isn't that kind of funny how they used to do that? The Rolling Stones did that when they were in Toronto too. They would they played two shows. So sometimes they would do like a matinee and then an evening show. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. Kind of, they don't do that anymore no, much anyway. No. Well, in those days, and it's been in Convocation Hall is just sort of open seating too. It's not very controlled. Mm-hmm. It was a bit of a bit hairy and. and yeah. Uh, the other the other version of that song that I really like is the one that um, Annie Lennox does. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. It's a really good version too. Yeah. The Bob Marley is amazing. I think his songwriting is just just uh, so awesome. He he's an interesting case because it, you know you, you think about bands and you can just kind of name almost any band and think yeah there's a band like them and they are X or Y but when you you say you can't really say that about Bob Marley I find you know no no he doesn't fit any pigeonhole it's very diverse it's so melodic too his melodies are are so beautiful yeah yeah I've always been a big fan. Yeah, melodies um, important to me in songwriting. I like I like a catch a me- catchy melody, but I also like a melody that that moves and grows as mm-hmm. the song progresses. So, just a, a side question. So, with Echo Beach, then, when you were writing that song, when you're thinking about melodies, what did you? How did that come about? Well, Mark actually wrote that song. Okay. So I didn't have anything to do with melodies, and he was very strict about how me singing exactly what he what he wrote, <laughs> what he was. I couldn't play around with it too much. Yeah, it was a real... He was a dictator. <laughs> well, there was a real little snot-nosed dictator back then. But yeah. yeah. And it's funny you mention that because as popular as that song is, it's not one of our, you know, if you break down the melody, it's not that much of a melody, really. No. <laughs> it's like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, like <laughs> it's very much a part of its time. And, you know, I to go back to that, we didn't really know what we were doing theme. I really didn't know what I was doing. I mean, that was a very early song. You know, as you may have noticed, there's no chorus until the very end because right. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, <laughs> like it wasn't that I, I wasn't going, hmm, why don't I be really clever and put the chorus only at the end? I, I you know, obviously I grew up with pop music and loved it, but yeah. uh, when I was doing those early um, songs, the, the structure uh, was sort of, un, uh, you know, unconscious, really. Well, you didn't wow. really know much about song structure of songwriting, and and you grew up with the Beatles too. And the Beatles had didn't have a, a straight format all the time. That's right. They're, oh yeah. Well, they were unbelievably. They were so invented. they were so clever with with uh, their arrangements. But see, mm-hmm. that, that, yeah. that, that's what I thought you were doing, Mark, with that. I thought that you, you held the chorus off till the very end, just to kind of break up the monotony of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, solo, verse, chorus. I love this theory, Brent, and you can chop <laughs> this, the previous part of this interview out. So, and, and then I'll, I'll re, I'll say that in my own words. And, uh, sounds very clever. Sounds really clever. <laughs> All right. We'll do some editing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The Beach Boys now, Martha. Uh, God only knows. Yeah, I just love, love that song. The Beach Boys aren't necessarily one of my favorite bands. I mean, they're good and talented and everything, but I just love that song. Again, it's the melody that I, I love and the harmonies, of course. The harmonies, it's very classical. It's very classical, Mark saying. Yeah, yes. the, the structure of it. Like if you just take the melody, it could have been something mm-hmm. that you know Mozart could have written. Like it's very sophisticated, you know. And I mean, he's a genius anyway, Brian Wilson. I oh think. yeah. I mean, 
you know, unbelievable. Yeah. So. Yeah. He was almost a, a, a musical savant in my opinion. You know, he would, he was otherworldly in terms of just being able to come up with things that nobody else would have. Yeah. And those arrangements, you know, like even, um, California girls, just that little intro, that weird little sound and it's sort of slightly out of tune and then right. it descends into the song. Like the arrangements are phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and given the fact that he was uh, deaf in one ear, yeah, you know, it's incredible. Like he was all he was doing all this monophonically. So yeah, you know, astounding, really. Adding a theremin to good vibrations, you know, just stuff. brilliant. Yeah. yeah, and then those cellos at the end that go, they go, yeah. you know, like, I mean, it's fantastic. Oh yeah, yeah, the guy was a genius. Judy Garland is next. Over the Rainbow. This is a great pick. 1939 this came out. Can you believe that? Yeah, I know. It came out the same year that um, Gone with the Wind came out. They were both nominated for Academy Awards. I think that was when the Technicolor came out as well. Well, there's that story about how it became commercially available, I think, while they were shooting uh, The Wizard of Oz. And that's where they got the idea that when she got out and landed in Oz, everything turned into color. Yeah, it was just amazing. Ah, it was, it's a scary film, though. Oh, it when is. When you're a kid. It's dark. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely dark. Yeah. Those yeah. monkeys, those flying monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the part where she sings over the rainbow, and she falls backwards into the, the hay. Yeah. So it's so Hollywood. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And it's it interesting that, you know, gazillions of people have done that, but there was something... What, falling into hay? Uh, no, not... <laughs> 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 I think... <laughs> Okay, millions of people have fallen into the hay, but not while singing over the rainbow. But <laughs> but I, I, what I was going to say was there's something about her version. You know, there were other singers that were, you know, maybe even technically better, but she nailed that feeling. And, like, it just sums up all the feelings that were welling up during the Great Depression, you know? Mm, yeah. Like, all that, that song kind of, kind of, like, crystallizes all the hopes of a better world. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Very uplifting. Yeah, very moving, her yeah. version. And I, I love her voice. I love her voice, too. Yeah. She's got a very pure, pure voice. You know, she's got a nice vibrato, and it, you know, she's not shrieking the high notes or anything. And it's kind of a tragic life. The film Duty is quite an interesting film, too. Yeah. Watch. I think she won an Academy Award for, it, for the performance. Who played it? I can't remember that. Um, name. Yeah. I, she was really good. Yeah. But anyways, it, mm. I love that song. Mm -hmm. Oh, me too. Um, your last song, Martha, The Beatles, Eight Days a Week. Yeah, it was hard to choose a Beatles song, but they influenced my, my had such, such an impact on my youth and um, also uh, my songwriting as well, I think. And I actually, I'm revealing my age here, but <laughs> I was very young, but I, I saw The Beatles three times at Maple Leaf Garden. Oh, in wow. Really? So. What was <laughs> I'm that, that like? old. Oh. <laughs> But I'm glad I am that old because it was a, quite an experience. The first time I saw them, I think I screamed. The second time, I cried. And the third time, I just listened. <laughs> oh, wow. That's fantastic. And me maturing. Yeah. <laughs> I was very young, but it had a big influence on, I'm on me. I'm sure. And I look at, when watching some of the um, live footage that's come out from 1963, 1965, mm -hmm. and uh, they were really good players. You know, they really played well. They oh, they certainly very did. Very tight. I mean, they played so much, I think, that they, they were really, really strong as music, musicians, too. 
Yeah, we, we often talk a lot about putting in your 10,000 hours as a band, you know, and back then. That yeah. Was, yeah. That was, and they, they just, did that in yeah. Hamburg, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, the camera club, yeah. <laughs> this one footage that I was, to watch, was watching Paul's t- introducing or is doing something, talking to the audience, and the girls are still screaming, and John tells them to shut up. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. Wow. Was, do they? Do they shut up? Yeah, they do for about five seconds. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, well, th- there were times where they couldn't even hear themselves play, I believe, right? Like Shea Stadium. Yeah, I, oh, yeah. I think yeah. it's one of the reasons they stopped touring. Yeah. It's just pointless, you know. That's unbelievable to, to consider. I'm, yeah. Isn't it? I know. The sound is amazing of uh, thousands of young women under the you know under the age of 14 screaming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Because like, I know I wasn't watching that with you, but I was in the other room, and I thought, we have to use that sound somewhere. It's just, it's unbelievable, you know, just this wall. It's not white noise, but it's just like this wall. But I was beside myself with love for the Beatles. I had posters all over my room. Oh, really? I used to kiss the poster at good, good night every night. Oh. Uh, yeah, this is, this is preteen, you know. Who was who your favorite, Martha? Oh, I, I, probably Paul at yeah. that time interesting theory about the Beatles if you're a fan for an extended time you you tend to have different favorite Beatles over the course of your life yeah yeah it will probably probably change all the time but I remember my sister and my cousin and my brother was younger younger than me we're all into the Beatles and we used to go down to the basement and play be the Beatles and we put their music on we each had to be somebody yeah of course and my my brother had to be because he was younger we bossed him around he had to be Ringo (laughs) (laughs) oh <laughs> he guy. sat on the back of the sofa and played the drums. <laughs> hey, Ringo's cool, man. Ringo's cool. Well, you, you know, you think about that. I mean, being Ringo in the Beatles is tough, but he's still Ringo. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so eight days a week is a good, good song. Oh, it's a great song. But I mean, like it's nice harmonies. A, it's, it's a tough pick, right? Because there's so many to choose from in the Beatles catalog, obviously. Yeah, they're great songwriters. The cool thing about this song is that it uses a fade in, and I think I think that that was the first time a fade in was used in the history of pop music. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah, it probably was actually. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, they did a lot of firsts. Well, the feedback on. Um, She's a fine loser. I feel fine. That's right. The first, I think yeah. Paul leaned a guitar or his bass against the amp, and I was going. Oh yeah, and that's what they used for the beginning, right? Yes, yeah. and that was the first use of feedback on a song. Yeah, so there um, you go. There you go. Another first. Mm-hmm. Of many. Yeah. So, Mark, we're going to stay on the Beatles because we're going to move over to you now and your list. And you start your list with The Beatles' Tomorrow Never Knows. Yes, well, what a groundbreaking song. Unbelievable. Like, it's still incredible. Because at that time, the Beatles, and particularly Paul, were absorbing all these influences from avant-garde, you know, quote-unquote serious composers like Karl-Heinz Stockhausen and all the music uh, concrete guys from France. And so he'd go home and make tape loops and do, you know, experimental things uh, with his tape recorders and stuff. And that all went into that song. And, uh, of course, George Martin was a huge influence on them that way as well. And so I think more than any other song up to, to that point, they kind of absorbed all these influences from, you know, serious new music sources and mm-hmm. put it into a pop song. And you know, that's pretty extraordinary. Like all those textures and the weird tape loops that are going on. And yeah. 
And I had access to the BBC sound effects library too. So they were always, from that point on, they were always, you know, whatever, whenever you heard a weird noise, it was likely from the BBC uh, sound effects library. You know, and, that, and Ringo's drum thing there, the, the pattern is great. That dum gak gak Fantastic, right? And then the droney, I mean, it's so, it was so far ahead of its time. I mean, nobody did any, had done anything like that on pop music before no. that. And it just opened up, you know, huge doors for everybody. Yeah, because what is this, 66? Yeah, I think so. So that was on Revolver. It was Revolver, I think, yeah. So Yeah, the end song. The technology that they had was minimal to work with. You know, yeah, I think it was still four tracks at that point. Yeah, I think they you had know, to bounce so tracks would, a lot. Yeah, yeah, incredible what they were able to do with four tracks. And of course, the whole world of sampling has been with us for a while. But you could sort of view, you know, the use of tape loops then as a very, you know, early ver- uh, use of sampling, certainly in pop music. You know. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And the backwards guitars and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot to learn. Like, I think even when I was a kid and I had no idea what I was ever going to do with my life, but I was listening, you know, I wanted to know like how, how they were getting these sounds, you know, you were absorbing them as a listener, but you were also going, what are they doing there? Mm-hmm. How are they doing it? Yeah. And they would go on to do a lot of other, you know, you think about the white album and all the stuff that went into that, just with the, all of the strange effects and, and inspiration. And they were open enough to absorb that stuff. That's the amazing thing. You know, a lot of musicians are, in some respects, very conservative because they have their skill set. And once they get out of their comfort zone, they don't regard strange things with much empathy or, mm-hmm. or interest even. But um, the Beatles were smart enough to absorb all these things that were coming at them and, and then using them. And, you know, we're the, we're the beneficiaries of all that. Yeah. And, and they were, they were just ahead of their time. You know, they, I would call them visionaries just because they, they were doing For this. Sure. They moved into after this, the, their psychedelic period, the stones followed them into that. Yes. You yeah, know? They did. And so, yeah, they're just brilliant artists. They also were, it was interesting because we were talking about the Beach Boys before Pet Sounds came out as a reaction to. Well, I'm not sure what you're going to say. You can say it. <laughs> I, well, well, I'll probably say it wrong. I always get dates and records wrong. No, no. Mars, Mars Morris in encyclopedia kind of, <laughs> kind of mind. But I thought, I thought that... Um, no, say it. Oh, Pet Sounds came out first. Yeah. And then they came out with Sgt. Pepper. That's, That's right. right. Hey, I got it right. Yeah. <laughs> I passed yeah. the mark test. No, there was sort of a rivalry. And, you know, when you listen to uh, Back in the USSR on the White Album, that's a total parody of the Beach Boys. That's right. Yes. You know... And it's brilliant, but it's also like an homage to the Beach Boys, because obviously the Beatles recognized them for the huge talents they were, too. So there was always a bit of back and forth there. Exactly. Yeah, I love stories like that. Nothing happens in a vacuum. I love all the stories just because, excuse me, there are so many things going on, you know, that as a listener, you may not know, and you can kind of connect all the dots. You you love all these songs, and it's, it's fascinating to hear the backstories behind them. Yeah, it gives you some depth into the song sometimes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Mark was you were telling me a story about somebody who went to a party with somebody, and they were bored with the party or something. They went into the closet and wrote 
Oh no, that was we heard that on uh, the CBC yesterday. Are we allowed to mention CBC? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's a Chris Isaac story. Oh yeah, right. And apparently he'd just broken up, and it wasn't Wicked Game, his biggest song, but. It, Apparently, he went to this big party just after he had broken up with somebody, and he didn't want to be there. And so he went into the front hall into a closet and closed the door to, I guess, hide. That's a bit oh. of a big closet. It was. And, but there happened to be a guitar in there. And so he tuned it up and wrote this breakup song in the closet during this big party. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's it's a so good strange. song, too. <laughs> and it's a good song. I wish I could remember the title, but it, it was a great song. And of course, he's got that Roy Orbison kind of voice, so he's got this great voice anyway, and it was a really nice song. But wow, he wrote it in the closet in the middle of a <laughs> party where he happened to just find a guitar. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, there, there, there are often a lot of really good stories behind the songs. Oh, it. yeah. One of mine, one of mine was that, um, Paint by Number Heart, which was a song of ours on our Metro Music, our first album. Yeah. Uh, everybody, every guy in, I knew who was a friend or had been a boyfriend or something thought it was about them. And the one guy that was about, he never asked. <laughs> oh, really? It was sort of like a bit of a put down of this one person. That's really and funny. And he didn't get it. And he didn't get it. <laughs> but everybody, everybody else thought it may have been about them. Everybody else thought it was about them. That, that sounds about funny. me, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never told the guy who it was about. <laughs> wow. That is funny. But they're interesting stories. Because it was a lot, a lot of songs. Oh yeah, were told. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mark, Jimi Hendrix, "Voodoo Child," slight return is next. Yes, the closing song on Electric Ladyland. Hmm. You know, there's been guitars since Hendrix that are, you know, more technical and can do faster runs and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the reason he, in so many people's eyes, is still the top of the heap was, well, he, he wrote great songs. He's a great guitarist. But this one, for me, exemplifies his borderline chaos that he could generate on that instrument mm. and oh, how he embraced that. Most, a lot, you know, to go back to that sort of conservatism in a lot of musicians, he didn't have that. And so this song... You know, it just at some point just completely lets loose. And in the middle of it, you're going, okay, here's uh, Mitch Mitchell. And it was Mitch Mitchell that's the drummer. Is that the bass player? No, I think it's the drummer. Yeah. Okay. So one of the early characteristics of these early bands like Cream and Hendrix, and uh, a lot of them is that the drummers all, a lot of them were taught by jazz drummers. Mm -hmm. And so their drumming is like, if you watch the way they hold their snare, they hold them like jazz drummers. That's right. Hold their sticks. Like they hold their um, sticks rather. And, you know, the proper way. Yeah. And they're not going gung 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 gung. They're playing jazz, like jazz drumming over this guitar that's basically full of screeching atonal feedback. That's and right. It's that song, and it's so well recorded. Like the drums actually aren't that loud. The, the guitar is right, right up there, and when he lets loose in the middle of it, and he's doing all his Hendrixian tricks and stuff. Yeah, you're just going. This is like Ornette Coleman or something. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. it's it's virtually on the cusp of complete abstraction. Mm -hmm. And he's okay with that. It's it, it goes beyond rock music, and it's just like a it, you know, it's like improvised abstract new music. Yeah. And of course, the opening riff is fantastic. You know, one of his like unbelievably recognizable riffs. Yep. Um, yeah. So, yes, that one, that one still makes my hair stand on end. 
that's a great point you make about the drummers of the day because people like Ginger Baker worshipped mm-hmm. the jazz guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They 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 were all of that age where when they were young they were taking lessons and that you know there wasn't really rock music as as we understand it from that period because it hadn't happened yet, you know. Right. So, yeah, it was all big band stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Now, your next pick, Mark, I'm not familiar with this at all. Steve Reich, is it? Yes, and this is going way out of the pop music field. And I got I had to laugh to myself about this because I thought, well, you know, Brent may know Steve Reich or not. Yeah. And uh, But th- this this is a piece that was written, uh, I think, in 19, or it came out in 1972. It's an hour long. Mm-hmm. And it's basically what a lot of people would call process music. So it's played by an ensemble of 18 musicians, and it's made up of largely uh, percussion players like um, vibraphone, uh, marimba, wow. um, mallet instruments, voice, bass clarinets, and uh, organ. And it's what happens is his theory behind this was everybody starts playing one phrase. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, part of the the band moves a certain number of beats <clears throat> ahead, and but continue playing the same thing. But what happens is that out of this process comes a very um, complex kind of music that's still very rhythmic. Mm. And people, uh, there's huge Steve Reich fans all over the world. I've seen music for 18 musicians three times. Yeah. At, at, he came to Massey Hall a few years ago and did it, and it, it's almost like a religious experience because what happens over the course of the hour is these shifting polyrhythms start creating psychoacoustic things in your head that don't exist. So you're hearing the music, but it's also creating overtones that aren't really being played. They're being created by the interaction of the various phase changes in the music. Wow. It's extremely positive. It's extremely uplifting. It's transcendental, and uh, it's probably not for everybody. But mm-hmm. after an hour, the band the, they end on a dime. Like it goes, "Jink it back, And they're all reading this. You know, they're reading music, and it's an extremely difficult piece to play. Wow! And I would uh, urge anyone to just like Google Steve Reich and um, listen to a bit of what he's done. He's a, he's considered a giant of 20th century, you know, late 20th century music, and he's still around and still doing great stuff. Wow. Well, I'm going to check that out. Yeah, check it out. And if, you're, if you've got an hour, and, you know, I know a lot of people don't have an hour to do this, but if you're in the mood and you can put it on and turn out the lights and lie down on your sofa, mm-hmm. you might really like it. Either that or you go, what was Mark talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, often- check it out. Oftentimes late on Friday nights after everybody else goes to bed, I'll do that. I'll, I'll turn the lights down and, and pour myself a, a bourbon and, and put stuff like that on just to kind of zone out, you know? So this is my, this is my new selection. Yeah. I, I, you know, and I'd be interested, like if you do hear it and you like it, or if you don't like it, you know, email us. I'd be curious to know how you, what you thought about it. Okay. I'm going to send you a note. Good or bad. I'm going to take you up on that. Yep. I will do okay. that for sure. I promise. Okay. All right. Uh, Joe Stafford, I know this one, The Nearness of You. This is uh, this is Hoagie Carmichael, I believe, right? Who wrote That's this? That's right, yeah. It's like he wrote Stardust. He was one of the old Brill Building guys, George on My Mind. 
He was a prolific writer, and uh, this one is very close to my heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad used to sing it to my mom. Ah, that's nice. In his quavery voice. Yeah. And my dad, it was strange because he, you might say he was tone deaf. It's hard to tell because sometimes he'd be right on key and then inexplicably would drift. Mm-hmm. You know, and there was no, you go, why did he suddenly go into the key of X? I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, he was, he was very heartfelt about it. And, and I, you know, grow up listening to him sing this song. And, you know, it's a beautiful song. And I think Joe Stafford's version is my favorite. Mm-hmm. Again, like um, Judy Garland, she, May not have been like the most dazzling singer, but her, if you listen to that particular recording, her feel for that song is phenomenal and her phrasing is fantastic. I like that you, you were discriminated about that because a lot of people have done this song. Annie Lennox has done this, Bing Crosby, Etta James. Nora Jones. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I would say upwards of 30, 40. There's a lot of versions of this, but I, I like that you picked that one. For that reason. Yeah, she just, she sang it like it was coming from some super deep part of her. Mm. The same way Judy Garland sang Over the Rainbow. Like it just, there might have been other, you know, Ella Fitzgerald or who else might have done it. And they, those would have been great versions too. But there was just something that, you know, hit, hit your soul listening to that and made that song come alive. Yeah. And one of the great things about music is sometimes the imperfections make it perfect, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, people, I've talked about this. Like, I feel that, um, and there's other people that would agree, I'm sure, and I've said this before, that limitations are what create a style. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, If you can do anything and if you can sing anything or you're the master of an instrument, um, that's a whole other sort of category of music. Uh, and, and playing and, and ability. But I've noticed sometimes, like when, a, say, a really great guitarist does his first solo album and he picks a whole bunch of songs to cover, mm-hmm. you kind of go, well, is this an album where you're showing off all the different styles you can do or is this coming from you? Mm. And sometimes somebody with lesser abilities has more of a style because they're limited to what they can do. And by doing so, there's sort of more resonance and more, I can't, I wouldn't say legitimacy because that's not what it is. It's more currency and, and more feeling. Yeah. You know, you, you're not just going, oh, they can hit that note. So, and, you know, in the end, so what? Right. Yeah. It's about feel. Yeah. That's, that's actually a good little credo. I like that. Yeah. That, I like that a lot. Cause you're right. It does, it, it can add character. Yeah, yeah. You know, we can do everything, then how do you know when to stop? Mm, that's a good point. That's true. Or limit yourself. And, you know, I think we didn't get to the fifth song yet, but I was going to, I could talk about Robert Fripp as a guitar player. Yeah, well, let's go to that one. So, Robert Fripp, the, the song is King Crimson's 21st Century Schizoid Man. Yeah, which was their very first album, uh, which is was 19, I think, 68. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would be too young for this, but you might know the album cover. It's like a big red screaming face on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I remember, you know, going into Sam the Record Man in the downtown Toronto store that was a landmark for many, many decades. And mm-hmm. going, what is that? You know, <laughs> and and then hearing it, and it seems 
It's probably something I wouldn't have picked except we're living in strange times. And it, it's almost like the song could have been written about Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> because it, it's basically a description of, you know, a 21st century schizoid man. And I think it might have been, if not the first version or the first instance, of somebody using deliberately distorting their voice. It must have been one of the earliest versions where Greg Lake's vocals are completely distorted and he's going 21st century. Yeah. You know. So it's quite scary. And then there's a whole middle section with Fripp's strange, elongated guitar. And Fripp, you know, is a technically brilliant guitarist, but oh, yeah. when he wants to be, he can be super simple. And, and it can be very funny sometimes, too. Tell him about the Sunday lunch thing. Oh, yeah. Nowadays, during COVID, he and his wife, uh, Toya Wilcox, who is quite a star in the UK as well, um, mm -hmm. they do this online thing called uh, Robert and Toya's Sunday Brunch, and they do cover songs, and they're just... They're hilarious. <laughs> absolutely oh. hilarious. Cause funny to watch. You may or may not know how, you know, Tripp has generally been regarded as a pretty intense, kind of uh, serious serious like mm -hmm. very serious guy and yes. i don't know whether it's just his age now and he doesn't care or <laughs> toya has opened him up somehow but yeah dance on, dance on the top of a table or something or he does all sorts of comedic things yeah very unfrip like oh um, i had no idea yeah because i knew he was very yeah, exactly. he, he was almost uh, a, a, like rigid he played with bowie for a little while right yeah yeah and uh uh, we met him, he came to see us play when we, our first gig outside of Toronto, we played in New York. Mm -hmm. And he came to see us and found it utterly terrifying because I was a huge <laughs> King Crimson fan all through my high school years. Yeah. And then all the subsequent stuff he did with Fripp or with uh, Ryan Eno. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's just done amazing things, the Frippertronic stuff. And there he was, you know, in his little black suit with a little thin tie, like 20 feet off the front of the stage with his arms folded across his chest. And I'm going, oh, my God, oh, you know, God. Like Robert Tripp. <laughs> <laughs> Later on, his uh, his wife, Toya Wilcox, did a, uh, a cover of Echo Beach. So it all comes around. Oh, wow. A circle. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. really she, cool. She did pretty well with her version, I think. She still plays because she does a lot of. Well, not. Well, she did. <laughs> she's, you know, not with COVID, but um, she was a pretty heavy touring act, and she still plays it live when you know when it's possible to do so. That's a nice tribute. Yeah, yeah, it's you know it's always very rewarding to see somebody else uh, do a you know a version of one of your songs. Absolutely. Well, it's a great song, you guys. Jeez. I mean, as I said at the top of the show, it's a true classic. Oh, so I think the song has kept us going. I think without Echo Beach, we probably would have the band probably would have broken up in the first year. <laughs> mm, well, I'm thankful for it. So that is the end of your songs, folks. Uh, I want to thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. As I said, I'm a fan, and it's been a real pleasure to talk to you both. Um, I've enjoyed it as well. Yeah, we really enjoyed it. It's uh, I don't think we've ever had to uh, come up with a list of songs and then talk about them. So it was a really great experience for us. Too. It was hard, too, to pick from just five uh, songs oh, it, it, Martha, all the songs you love. It's impossible. It's really impossible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oftentimes people, people come back on the show with another five, you know, if people have been on the show yeah. four or five times. So, yeah, you can't. Uh, it'd be easy to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, if you like talking music, it's, it's a nice way to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for doing it. I, I appreciate it. It was great speaking with you both. You're welcome. So stay on, stay on. I'm just going to wrap up the show here. Okay. Okay. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guests, Martha Johnson and Mark Gain of Martha and the Muffins. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon worldwide. <laughs>